spirit of Groundhog Day has just made you guys very loving with one another. I like it. So there was a man who won a ticket to the Super Bowl. And lo and behold, he got there and realized that his seat was in the nosebleed section. But he's in, he's in the stadium, he's at the game, he's certainly thrilled to be there. But like anybody that's in the nosebleed section, he very early on in the contest looks down for maybe one of those seats that he could move down to. And he, he spots a seat on the front row, it's next to an old man, and as the first quarter moves along, he continues to notice that nobody's coming and sitting there. And so at the break of the first and second quarter, he makes his way down, sort of past security, snakes his way to the front, and approaches the old man and says, is anybody sitting here? And the old man says, no, have a seat. And he, said, and he starts to ask the old man, is this your seat? He said, yes, I've been coming, um, my wife and I have been coming to the Super Bowl for for 35 years, uh, and we always sit on the front row, and I'd be, I'd be happy to share uh, this seat um, with you. And, sit, and the guy said, well, well, why isn't your wife here? He said, well, sh- she died. She passed away. And he said, oh, well, well you know, thank you so much. Did you not have any, any friends or family members that you could bring along with you? He said, no, they're all at the funeral. So... <laughs> big game, you know? What do you say? (laughs) All right, we're going to dive in and read the passage here in just a second. Turn to Mark 1, if you would, Mark chapter 1. And let me encourage you, as we read and study these stories in Mark's gospel, let me encourage you to ask God to give you fresh eyes to see, uh, a soft heart to feel what is being taught here. I think it's easy to sometimes maybe dismiss a lot of the narratives in the life of Christ, and I think that's because they are so familiar to us. But try to keep in mind, I mean, this is God's Word. There is is always something for you here, always something deeper to be found. It may not be the same thing as you read a story that connected with you the first time that you heard this or the fifth time that you heard this, but maybe now on this tenth time, God has something to say to you. Just ask that you'd be sensitive to that. Tune in in a very intentional way. And you'll remember, as we started this study in Mark's Gospel a few weeks ago, that Mark begins not with a genealogy like Matthew or a long birth narrative like Luke, nor does he start with deep theology like John. Mark starts with John the Baptist. And we discussed a number of reasons why Mark begins there. The first being Mark's audience. Mark wrote his gospel with Roman citizens in mind. These Romans would be Gentiles. Therefore, there wasn't much of a need to include details about the Jewishness of the Messiah. So genealogies and Old Testament prophecies, they wouldn't really connect with the heart language of a Roman But there would be a connection in establishing the Messiah as ruling king, as royal authority. A Jesus who is king would have deeply resonated with the Romans. And that's because to be Roman was to be in subjection to a king, or the one that they called 
the emperor. And it was around 44 BC when Julius Caesar, you remember this story, he was, in, he was assassinated by the Roman Senate. And the upheaval that, is, that, that, that caused, what that, what that began to create was it created Rome from being a republic into an empire. So from a democracy to a dictatorship. And it was Julius Caesar's adopted heir, Octavian, who would be referred to later as Augustus, he would be the first Roman emperor, Augustus Caesar. The kingdom would belong to him. He is the emperor that was in power when Christ was born. He's mentioned, actually, in Luke chapter 2. And then after Augustus, control of the empire would be handed down to Tiberius Caesar, then to Caligula, then Claudius, and at the time Mark is writing, to Nero. And somewhere along the way, the emperors were given status as gods. They were seen as gods. Their power then was absolute. Their very existence was celebrated. Their edicts were not questioned. So the empire itself, the vast Roman empire, stretching from from northern and far western Europe to the Middle East and even to North Africa, this was the largest kingdom the world had ever known. And the emperor is in charge of it. And he was therefore revered and even worshipped. How does this then connect with Mark beginning with John the Baptist? Why does, why does the gospel start with John the Baptist? Because in the mind of a Roman, a king, as I just said, was a significant thing. And a king didn't just show up unannounced. A king needed a herald. He needed a forerunner, someone to prepare the way for his arrival. And the king that Mark was announcing in his gospel had exactly that. Jesus had that forerunner. His name was John the Baptist. And we know by the ministry of John the Baptist that he wasn't preparing the people for a political king. He didn't tell them to go enroll in political science classes. And we know he wasn't preparing them for a military king. He didn't tell them to sharpen their swords and prepare for battle. No, John the Baptist said, repent and be baptized. That was the extent of his ministry. The king John the Baptist was preparing the way for would deal, not in the realm of politics or war, but he would deal with the ultimate enemy, the dual enemies, really, of sin and death. Therefore, the way John was having the people prepare for this king was through through the confession of sins and through baptism. So this king is coming into history, coming onto the scene, and this was indeed significant, as significant as any emperor who had ever risen to power in the empire. Therefore, the way to proclaim the coming of this king was with a gospel. That's what we have here. That's why this book starts in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This isn't a biography. This is proclamation. This is good news, glad tidings about a king who has come. He is our king. He's King Jesus. Let's read Mark 14, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Inspired by the Spirit, Mark writes, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will will make you become fishers of men. 
And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were there in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. Two major things stand out in these seven verses. The king's message and the king's men. We'll start here in just a second with the former, the king's message. But real quick, quick, you need to notice verse 14. It starts with, now after John was arrested. What you need to understand is the baptism of Jesus that we read about in verses 4 through 8 that we studied a couple of weeks ago. That once we get to verse 14, where I began reading this morning, we've jumped forward about 12 months. About a year has passed. Jesus was baptized. He was immediately led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. He was in the wilderness 40 days. He passed the test. He showed his power, his authority over Satan. But since his baptism and since that tempting, Jesus has been in Jerusalem and Judea. He spent at least six months there. He cleansed the temple in John 2. He encountered Nicodemus in John 3. He met the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. And now he is coming back to Galilee. Galilee, And his return is corresponding with the time that John the Baptist was arrested by Herod. So prior to John's arrest, um, John was baptizing. He was still ministering at the Jordan. Jesus was ministering in Judea. So their two ministries sort of overlapped. And it's okay that they overlapped, because John the Baptist knew his place. We saw this in the beginning. And in John chapter 3, we see it even more vividly. He he says, I must decrease, he must increase. John wants Jesus to take the attention. He wants to fade into the background. And God saw to that by taking John the Baptist off the scene entirely, by having him arrested. So with John the Baptist no longer in the frame, with with him, the final Old Testament prophet, apprehended and put away by King Herod, we have Jesus now coming into full view. And we see him come into full view as he begins this ministry of proclamation in Galilee. Jesus speaks. He is preaching a message. Let's look at the king's message. Four aspects to it. First, it is God's message. Look there. Jesus came into Galilee. Galilee was the northern region of Israel. Jerusalem and Judea was in the southern region. Galilee was in the north. It was the region he called home. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. What does he mean the gospel of God? You know, isn't it the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it is. It is the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is the gospel of God in the sense that God is the source of it. The gospel is from God. It is God's message. So it is the gospel that comes from God about Jesus Christ. And remember, we've covered this. Gospel is the Greek word evangelion. It means good news. So the gospel of God means God's good news. Jesus is preaching God's good news. And I love the simplicity of this. Jesus came preaching the good news from God. He came, God sent him, sent him with a message, and Jesus proclaimed it. So when it comes to ministry, when when you're going to do ministry, what you do, it's very simple. You repeat the message that came from God. So preaching is not so much about, you know, analyzing the culture. It's not about diagnosing people's psychological bents. 
not about devising a message of life strategies and steps to happiness, telling people what you think they might want to hear. Preachers come as heralds announcing a message that is from God. That's what we do. And, and coincidentally, the message, the news, is the best news the world has ever heard. It's the news that God himself broke into history to solve a problem that we couldn't solve. He made us right with him. He reconciled sinners to himself. That is great news. Now, there's a lot wrapped up in accepting that news, but that is really great news. And it's really important at this point to distinguish the difference between advice and news. And that's because the essence of all other religions is advice. But Christianity is essentially news. Other religions say, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God. And this is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. Here's our advice. Just stick to it. But the gospel says, this is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died and rose again to earn the way to God for you. Christianity is completely different from all other forms of spirituality. It's not advice. It's news. I'll just illustrate it this way. It's the difference between the box score and the Dear Abby column. The box, the box score reports to me what has happened, right? Kevin Durant had 35 points on 12 of 18 shooting and 6 assists. That is fixed. It's real. It's done. And there's nothing I can do to make the Thunder box score any different. All I can do is accept it. Dear Abby says, Dear lost and broken, your problem is with X and Y, and if you only do Z, then you might find happiness. See the difference? Religion is advice on how you must live to earn your way to God. The gospel is the good news that you don't need to earn your way to God. Jesus has already made the way for you. So much preaching today is advice and not news. So much preaching is, here's what you have to do, and not, here's what God has done. So much of it is, here, here are four steps, here are eight ways, here are six laws. Forget that. I'm bad at that. Tell me how to be saved. That's what I need. Sally Lloyd-Jones is the author of a children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a Bible that we've read to our uh, little ones since they were <laughs> really as, as little as they could be to pay attention to a story. And she wrote the Bible um, in response to an experience she had teaching children's Sunday school. She was teaching a class of, I think about kindergarten age, four, five, six-year-olds. And she was teaching a lesson on Daniel in the lion's den. And as she told the lesson, she noticed one girl, little girl in particular, who was just engrossed in the lesson. Maybe she had never heard it before, or maybe the way the material was being laid out really captured this little girl's heart and mind. And she said by the middle of the lesson, the little girl was practically in Sally Lloyd-Jones' lap, just, just en engrossed in the story of Daniel. And as she moved along and got to the end of the lesson, the conclusion, the takeaway moment for these little kids was be brave because Daniel was brave. And Lloyd-Jones shares that when she said that, the life in the little girl's face just went away completely. She anticipated God, this rescuing God, this Savior God, this mighty God. He was the culmination of this great story. 
But that's not where the curriculum took the story. It took it to advice. Be brave. It made it a, simply a morality tale, an ethical statement, an inspirational uh, legend. Be brave. That's not what we see in the gospel. It's not what we see. It's not advice. It's news. It's news. It's not life tips and strategies. It's something we see and we respond to with repentance and faith. That's what we see in this first message. King Jesus is bringing God's gospel, God's news, the good, good news. Secondly, it's a message, it's God's message in history. What do I mean by that, in history? Look at verse 15. The time is fulfilled. What that means is there was a consciousness on the part of Jesus that with his arrival, all history is at a turning point. So when we see the time is fulfilled, or the fullness of time had come, as we see in Galatians 4.4, what that means is God's plan to save a people through Jesus had reached the place where his son was now sent to accomplish what needed to be accomplished for God to save sinners the way he wanted to save them. Everything was happening. All cylinders were firing. God's plan to save a people was not a haphazard plan. There was a precise timing to it. It's not a legend. It's tied to history. And history has been anticipating, waiting for this moment, for Genesis 3.15 to be fulfilled, for the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And now it's here. And there had been a lot leading up to this time, a lot of long-suffering and patience on God's part, a lot of sin and disobedience and some triumph and loss on man's part. And now the fullness of time had come. Prominent theologian and pastor John Stott, he wrote a book called Why I'm a Christian. He wrote it around 2003, I believe. And, and in that book, he's replying to the philosopher Bertrand Russell, who in 1927 wrote a very famous book, Why I'm an Atheist. So Stott, one of the most important evangelical theologians of the 20th century, after a lifetime of study and reflection, writes this book, Why I'm a Christian, and it's against the, it's against the, the treatise of, of Bertrand Russell. And Stott's first reason for why he is a Christian in this book, uh, Why I'm a Christian, is tied to Mark 1. It's this text right here. It's the fact that the first thing that Jesus said was that the time is fulfilled. It's that Jesus knew and taught that all history has a turning point in him. That all of the Old Testament, in terms of its prophecies and anticipation, has reached its culmination point in him. Jesus knew that, and Stott knew that. And his point is, the historical veracity of the Christ event, and all that led up to it, it was the linchpin of Stott's Christian faith. It's absolutely core and crucial. You remember later, Jesus will go into the synagogue, it's recorded there in Luke chapter 4, and he'll he'll read from Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah chapter 61. And when he's finished reading, he'll roll up the scroll, he'll sit down, and he'll say, today the scripture is fulfilled in me. Using the same word there, fulfilled. The message of Jesus is that all the Old Testament find its fulfillment in him. So he's not just a figure in history, but but history is actually his story. It's all about him. It leads completely up to him and then flows entirely from him. Third, 
the king's message is God's message in history about God's rule. What I mean by God's rule is God's kingdom. Jesus saying here, the kingdom of God is at hand. Which is to say, the kingdom of God, it's right under your nose. Think about that in relation to the Roman Empire. The great kingdom of Rome. Jesus, this man from Nazareth, is coming saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what's important to understand when using the word kingdom is that there are three aspects to it in Scripture, three dimensions to God's kingdom in Scripture. So when you see or or you use the word or hear others use the word kingdom, make sure you're connecting it to the right dimension because it can get confusing pretty fast. The three phases are the, the, the spiritual kingdom, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal kingdom. Maybe you've heard of some of those. And as you think through those dimensions, you realize the kingdom of God is is a kingdom that is both now and not yet. It is to an extent here and to a greater extent in the future. It's both tangible and intangible. And here's what I mean. When Jesus comes into the world in Mark, Mark chapter 1, the king comes, and because the king is here, his kingdom is here. The king is here, his kingdom is here. And in coming, the desire of Jesus is to establish his spiritual kingdom in the hearts of all who believe. So what that means is by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a part of the kingdom of God. He is your king. He rules in your heart by faith. When you become a Christian, you you came into his kingdom. And as you follow him, you seek Christ and his kingdom and his righteousness. And in that, there's, again, this spiritual sense of his kingdom. He reigns in in the hearts of those who have trusted in him. So, in this church, when we talk about expanding the kingdom or, or about doing kingdom work, we're connecting it to this dimension, that more and more people would have their hearts ruled by King Jesus, this spiritual kingdom. Now, in the future, there will be another dimension to the kingdom of God. It's what's called the millennial kingdom. And I'm not going to get too into eschatology, which is the study of the last things this morning. I'm just going to say that this millennial kingdom is an earthly kingdom, that's what Revelation 20 says. It's going to last a thousand years. Christ will, will, will rule physically from Jerusalem. And all things at that moment, all things in that epoch, not just the hearts of those who believe, but all things will be subjected to Jesus. That's the millennial kingdom. That's coming in the future. That's not yet. Then after that is the last phase of the kingdom. And it's this last phase that goes on forever. This is the new heavens and the new earth where Christ reigns forever and ever as King of kings and Lord of lords. So the first time he comes, he comes to establish a spiritual kingdom. The second time he comes to establish the millennial kingdom. And it's throughout Mark that we're going to see the confusion of those two kingdoms clash. But then ultimately, we'll live with him in an eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. But as Jesus speaks here, he says, the kingdom is at hand because the king has arrived. He's ready to rule in hearts by faith. And what's the gateway to having the king rule in your heart? Look at the last part of his message. Last thing we see about the king's message is that it demands a response. And that response is to repent and believe the gospel. Right there is the key to being in the kingdom. It's having the king rule in your heart, and the way to have that king rule in your heart is through repentance and faith. 
Now just consider this message. Jesus comes into the world, he begins his public ministry, and the first words out of his mouth are, all of you need to change. Everyone needs to turn. You need to change your mind and your heart and your ways and your attitudes and your predispositions and your habits. That's what repent means. It means to have a change of mind. Jesus is telling everyone, there is a crisis. You're a sinner, and your sin offends God. Yet in his kindness, God, through the gospel, is calling you out on that sin. He's calling you out on that offense. And this demand to repent is a line in the sand. God is saying, rather than dismiss your sin, rather than justify your sin, rather than get deeper into your sin, you must repent of your sin. God... Call that sin what God calls it, and then go in the other direction. So the first teaching of Jesus' ministry of proclamation, proclamation is a, a message that says there's something radically wrong, and it needs to change. And the only way it can change is if you repent, embrace me, believe the gospel. And here's what you need to believe and understand about repentance. We're talking about repentance a lot here in the first part of Mark, because... It comes up a lot. It's part of John the Baptist's ministry. Now it's becoming a part of Jesus' ministry. What you need to understand, what you need to really believe about repentance is repentance is not the coin we put in the vending machine of salvation to get our product. It's not just part of some formula. Repentance is actually part of the gift of salvation. Let me say that again. Repentance is part of the gift of salvation. It's part of being liberated and known and loved and accepted and real and out from underneath shame. That's why the Bible says it's the kindness of a loving God that leads us to repentance. Problem is, we don't think repentance is good for us. We don't view repentance as good for us because we've learned to see it as something that messes up our PR. It tears through the fig leaves that we've spent so much time sewing together. The fig leaves that cover our unrighteousness and promote our self-righteousness. It breaks through all of that. tears those things away. And there's a grief to repentance, but it is a beautiful grief. Linsky, a commentator, he wrote this. He says, the grief of repentance is never a loss. Not to experience the grief is a loss indeed. The message of Jesus, a very simple message. It's about the rule and the dominion and the sovereignty of God, and it's tangibly seen when, in your life when you respond in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's proclaiming. That's the king's message. Now, in the time I have left, let's look at the remaining verses, see what Mark has to say about the king's men. He would find these men as he passed along the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was more like a lake. It was 13 miles long, 7 miles across. Uh, the Sea of Galilee, the lake, is actually about 600 feet below sea level. So it's really one of the most unique places in the world. There's lots of volcanic soil surrounding the Sea of Galilee. It's an extremely fertile region. And I learned this week that the fish caught out of the Sea of Galilee were shipped throughout the entire empire. There were fish in the Sea of Galilee that were not found anywhere else in the world. And I mention that fact because a successful fishing operation on the Sea of Galilee, it could be a pretty lucrative thing. Meaning, 
these men that Jesus is about to encounter, these were not peasant fishermen. These were likely pretty savvy businessmen. Now, did they, did they know what a hard day's work looked like? Yes, of course they did. But the operation that they were involved with was an extremely successful one. And what we see first is, is that the king's men, they are called to follow. They're called to follow. The striking thing about how Jesus called his first disciples is that he called them. I say that because the tradition of the day didn't work this way. In the first century, people chose rabbis. Rabbis didn't choose people. Those who wished to learn um, sought a rabbi they respected, and they would say to him, I want to study with you. Then you would be allowed to, to, um, to follow the rabbi, learn from his manner of life, learn from his teaching. It's just how the system worked. But Mark is showing us that Jesus has a different type of authority than the regular rabbis. Jesus isn't waiting on followers. He's calling his followers. This is why in another gospel he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This is the essence of what it means to be called to follow Jesus. You're not called and then saved because of your superior intellect or your moral standing. You're not saved because you, you had the spiritual wherewithal to, to see God and worship him and say, ah, there's the one I want to follow. No, you worship God because he sovereignly chose you, elected you, gives you the desire to follow Jesus. No one would be saved if God waited for us to see how great and awesome he is. No one. But a great multitude are saved because God is rich in mercy and calls men and women to follow him. And notice when Jesus says, come follow me, they come. They didn't negotiate or, or seek more information. These men respond to the authority of Jesus. The king has summoned them. They followed. And I love the details wrapped up in Mark chapter 1 mending their nets, casting their nets on the sea, leaving their father standing in the boat. There's just some great details that point to the authenticity of this account. Narrative accounts didn't look this detailed in the first century. So I love the, the way, even in his great economy of style, his, 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 his way to condense the information. Mark puts in these little details that are so, so helpful. So they're called to follow. They're also called to fish which is funny because they're fishermen. And the carpenter, Jesus, calls them and says, I'm going to teach you to fish. Now most believe the mother of James and John, a woman named Salome, she is likely the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So James and John were Jesus' cousins. So it's likely, very likely, that they knew Jesus, kind of going way back. They knew his trade. Jesus would have known their trade. And the carpenter calls the fishermen out of fishing to teach them to fish. But he's teaching them to fish for men, for lost souls. Interesting to me that the call to follow Jesus isn't just the call to follow Jesus. Here's what I mean. Jesus didn't say, come follow me and I will make you followers of me. No, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. To follow Jesus is to reach the lost. Following Jesus the way he desires doesn't just conform you to his likeness. You don't just take on his manner of life, though that's an important thing to do. Following Jesus gives you a heart to love what Jesus loves, gives you a desire to save what Jesus came to save. You want to reach people. You want to be a fisher of men. And in, in, in the longer you follow him, 
the more you see his manner of life in the word, the greater heart you will have for those who are far from him. Last thing about the king's men, they're called to follow, they're called to fish, they're also called to forsake. Look at the two pairs of brothers. The first pair, Simon and Andrew, they leave their nets. The second pair, James and John, they leave their father, Zebedee. They leave these things and they follow Jesus. And this is significant because in the minds of Peter and Andrew, James and John, in their minds, both vocation and family aren't as important as following Jesus. And this is significant because think about the primary areas of life that we give ourselves over to. Vocation and family. These are the primary things that define us. And I'm not saying vocation and family are unimportant, but compared to following Jesus, compared to your love and devotion and worship of Jesus, they need to be seen as insignificant. That's why Mark purposely includes what they leave behind, to display the wonderful devotion of these disciples when they choose to follow. What might Jesus be calling you to leave behind so that you might follow him? What is he asking you to see as insignificant? Not unimportant, but compared to him, insignificant. Today, Jesus is saying, follow me to some of you. And you're going through your mind, man, at the expense of what? At the expense of who? What is Jesus calling you away from so that you can establish intimacy and friendship and discipleship with him? Really what the disciples did is just an embodied illustration of the core message, repent and believe the gospel. Have a different preoccupation. Change your mind about what you're doing here so that you can then believe and trust in Jesus here. Turn from this manner of life that you're so wrapped up in, that so defines you and shapes you, turn from this manner of life so that you can then follow the man, Jesus Christ. You will not regret to leave behind whatever it is you have to leave behind to follow Jesus. C.S. Lewis writes, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I want you. That's the gospel. That's That's the proper response to the gospel. Not giving this part of you or that part of you or Sundays over to Jesus or maybe a little part of your resources, your bank account, whatever. No, it's, it's you. You, you. you transfer your trust from yourself, your stuff, your things, to Jesus. And in transferring that trust, you say, this isn't my life. This is in my life, but this isn't my life. This is my life. That's what these disciples were doing. We're fishermen, we're good at it. Isn't my life. Jesus is my life. And it would carry them through the rest of their lives. The king's message demands a response. It's a line in the sand. Again, as C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, 
of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Forsaking all and following him. He's the king. He's the king with everything. Why wouldn't you follow that king? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We thank you for the richness of your word and the, and the depth of the teaching we find in it. We come to you just confessing each one of us, whether for the 500th time or the first time, confessing our need for Jesus Christ. And we confess before you that, that we put all sorts of kings on the throne of our heart. But Jesus is calling us to put him, the rightful king, the king of everything. He wants to be at the throne of our heart. God, we need grace in this. This is not something we, we would come to on our own. Give us the mercy and kindness to repent of our sin, to be real about who it is we are, To come, under, to come out from underneath the shame of all that and to give ourselves completely to you. Thank you for loving us in Christ. Thank you for the time that we've had to spend here worshiping, loving you. Pray that you would, would now be with us as we move into taking the Lord's Supper uh, together as we continue to worship Christ uh, in spirit and truth. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I'd ask that uh, our deacons come forward.